Hitler and Germany. Deutschland is happy and gay. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! RFM. Hello, Here we are. How are you doing? Here we are. Back for episode number two. There's already 12 people watching this thing. We just got started. And uh, here we are again, Mormonism Live, uh, ready to rock and roll tonight. And uh, tonight we're going to tackle a little more Fair Mormon. Uh, so what are, what, are we, what are we in store for here today? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take a brief overview of the 11-minute Fair Mormon video, the recent video defending the Book of Abraham. You know, I talked with a friend of mine just the other day about this video. He had seen it. He was kind of appalled and thought they did a really, really not good job of defending the book of Abraham. Of course, it's not exactly an easy thing to defend, if you know what I mean. And he thought they did more harm than good, actually. And his question to me was, why are they even doing this? Why are they defending the book of Abraham? And my response to him was, because they have to. They have to. This is one of the number one reasons for people leaving the church. And they're leaving in quite huge numbers. And a lot of it has to do with the book of Abraham. So they have to do a video about the book of Abraham. And what they end up doing is not so much addressing the issues related to the book of Abraham as they do uh, tearing down and dismissing and castigating and ad hominem-ing, <laughs> ad hominem-ing. Love the word. The Thank you. The people, the Egyptologists, those who are quoted in the CES letter with their opinions about the book of Abraham. So what we're going to talk about tonight, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the waters of the book of Abraham, has to do not so much with the book of Abraham itself, but with uh, really a wonderful case study in logical fallacies that are used in this fair Mormon video, especially the straw man logical fallacy, but most of all, the ad hominem logical fallacy. This is the best example of logical fallacy ad hominem arguments that I've ever seen in my life. I've been talking a lot right now, Bill. Bill, would you please define for our audience what ad hominem argument means the the ad hominem attack is when you attack a person not on the data that they're sharing not on the issue that they're presenting but you instead find some other reason about their character uh their appearance uh the the job they hold the uh education they've got and you use that to discredit them rather than deal with the actual statement uh and data or points of information that those folks are sharing Exactly. I've heard people do that in the past to you talking about why should I listen to you? You're a pawn shop manager. That's all I am. I'm just a pawnbroker. Uh, people try to write off other reasons. Bill dropped out of college. Bill's not very educated. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have to deal with the actual substance of the arguments that people make. And that's how a debate or a uh, discussion of criticism for and against certain arguments goes. Right. And we'll see some great examples of this as we proceed with tonight's podcast. Where did you want to start with, Bill? 
Well, first, I want to just say this. For everybody who's watching tonight, uh, I hope the show continues to be entertaining for you. I hope that you uh, find what me and RFM present on a weekly basis to be uh, entertaining and uh, enlightening and to be informational and uh, to get a few laughs out of it. Uh, but what I also want to say here on the front end of this is that us, you and I, being able to kind of dedicate multiple hours. You and I talked probably four or five times today. Uh, we've had conversations back and forth through text and through phone calls over the last few days. Uh, it takes a lot of time to prepare this. I know you especially, you really uh, focus in and spend a lot of time and energy, RFM, on preparing for these conversations and for your podcast as well. I, I want to make a note for listeners or viewers who are watching tonight and listeners later on through the podcast version. Would you please support Mormonism Live? You can go to the website, mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, just drop a $10 bill or a $20 bill. Uh, if you can do it as a recurring donation, that would be great. Uh, we obviously want to raise enough money through that facet of our 501c3, Mormon Discussion Incorporated, that we can support uh, you and I continually on a weekly basis, putting this time in and doing this uh, and setting our personal lives aside to, to reach out to the viewers and again, later on the listeners to share these kinds of discussions and, and to help them become informed about how uh, things are going on in Mormonism and to, and to help them deconstruct or reconstruct various facets of their spiritual life. Really good, Bill. Thank you for that plug. You're welcome. Um, I think the first place we want to start is with the beginning of the video. And uh, I know that you've done a ton of work in the last couple of years on the Book of Abraham. Uh, you and I did a, a three-part conversation, right? Had a, a really good, I thought, in-depth conversation. You've interviewed two Brian. Two years ago, Bill. Two, two years, years ago. ago, we did that. You interviewed uh, Brian Hoglid. You've, uh, you and John DeLynn interviewed Robert Rittner. You've talked to David Bakavoy. Uh, you've explored this issue at length. And I have to just say on the front end too here, you are really an expert at the Book of Abraham. And again, they can use that homonym and say, you have no Egyptological experience or training. You really don't have any expertise. But the reality is you've sat in these conversations with guys like Robert Rittner, Hoglid, and uh, um, David Bakavoy, and you're not lost. You can you can sit in that conversation and, and chime in and, and share your two cents, and you fit right in with all of those people. You've really spent a lifetime understanding this issue, and I just want to say kudos to you. Um, so a lot has been done previously. If we go to the beginning thank of the you, video, you, yeah, you're welcome. You. If we go to the beginning of the video, we're going to go 18 seconds in. This is the Fair Mormons. This is the show. Uh, and I want to start off with this little tidbit um, that they talk about this idea uh, that Joseph Smith presents from the book of Abraham, that this papyri, this these writings, these are the writings of Abraham uh, written by his own hand. So this is 18 seconds to 47 seconds. And let's uh, put that up on the screen now. And here is uh, the tape. Claim is that because the book of Abraham states that it was written by the hand of Abraham, that means the exact papyrus Joseph translated must have been the exact paper Abraham used. Since the papyrus post-states the life of Abraham, the letter insinuates this means the scripture is a fake. This is flawed logic. For example, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is written by J.K. Rowling or C.S. Lewis or some nonsense. However, this book projected was printed in 2006. Yes, she is the author, but not the literal copyist of this book. So I, I want to start with this argument, the argument that you and I and everybody else who's listening right now and all the people who've walked away from the church or deconstructed or become nuanced Mormons, 
our issue, our issue is that the claim was that it was written by the hand of Abraham. And because this papyri may not be written, this actual very papyri may not be written by the very hand of Abraham. And it's his ink coming out of the feather pen on top of this papyri that, that that's our problem. If we would just let go of that assumption, this would all go back together. And as you well know, Arvim, that's not the issue. The issue is not whether this is the exact writing of Abraham. The issue is that the papyri has nothing to do with the text that Joseph Smith got. And, and it wouldn't matter to me if the papyri was one of a million that came off a printing press in the middle of Egypt and uh, is a copy of something that Abraham had written a thousand years earlier. That wouldn't bother me and it wouldn't bother you and it wouldn't bother anybody if the papyri that we have had any resemblance to what Joseph Smith translated in the book of Abraham. It doesn't. And that's the issue. The issue is not whether it's a first-hand writing account. The issue is that it is uh, nothing to do with the book of Abraham scriptural canon that that is used in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today and seems to be a completely entirely different document. In fact, I won't even say seems. It is. It's a standard funeral text, and it's multiple documents, but they're standard documents that would have been found in Egypt, in, in ancient Egypt, and have nothing to do with the book uh, of Abraham as Joseph Smith translated it. That's the crux of the issue. It's not whether it's this particular papyri is written in Abraham's hand or not. Yes, I think the that argument could go both ways. I think the strength of the argument is that really Joseph Smith does appear to have been presenting this as having been actually written by the hand of Abraham upon this papyrus. Um, it's not the book of Abraham that says it. It was Joseph Smith who said it. And actually, that's not all he said. The complete quote of what he said from 1835 was, quote, translation of the book of Abraham. By the way, he uses that word translation. Oh, that's a pesky word. Yeah. Translation of the book of Abraham written by his own hand upon papyrus and found in the catacombs of Egypt. So that's how Joseph Smith described these papyrus. And when you put all that together and you find out, oh, it's written by his own hand upon papyrus and found in the catacombs of Egypt, it gets harder right. to talk about this in terms of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. I don't want to take up too much time here, but I do have to note that the only reason this argument has to be made at this point is because in Joseph Smith's day, yeah, this could have been papyrus written by Abraham. It was just as likely as anything else. But now that the field of Egyptology has grown, blossomed, matured, and become established since that time, what we know and what Egyptologists know is that this document came from around the first century BCE. That's when this document was produced, which is well over 1,500 years after anybody thinks that Abraham is purported to have lived. So therefore, it's because of that problem with dating that this argument has to be made. It has to be a copy of a copy of a copy. But really, when you look at what Joseph Smith said, yeah, it looks like he's presenting it as being the real thing, a real holograph written by the hand of Abraham himself. Yeah. So that's the first issue we run into is that they're building a straw man argument, which is really not the, the issue that all of us have. If, if we were to find out, RFM, if we were to find out that um, what we had was a replica document that was a copy of the document that Abraham had actually written. And if the papyri, when looked at by Egyptian, they, they said, or by Egyptologists, if they said, look, this document, it's not as old as Abraham, but it does say the things that the book of Abraham says, all of us would still be going to church. 
Oh, absolutely. It would have been a, a non-consequential issue if that were the case, like you say. Yeah. So where do we go from here? Where we go from here is to the next point in the video. And that has to do with, oh, they're going to teach us a master's course in ad hominem arguments because the CES letter references a number of different people who have things to say about the book of Abraham, which are not faith promoting. And so therefore, instead of really dealing with the issues they raise, the Fair Mormon video with Kwaku L and Brad Whitbeck are going to go after the people who said them. So here we are. Falsely translating. The letter says that the filled in images inside of the red circles are seen as nonsense by modern Egyptologists. However, we track down the person he is quoting, a man named Kevin Mathy. Now, the letter quotes an article by him, but the website is down, so the link redirects back to the CES letter's own website. So we needed to look up this respected Egyptologist, Kevin Mathy. Turns out he isn't an Egyptologist. He is a composer and pianist, I kid you not. His awards in Egyptology include the Best Behind the Scenes Musical Theater MVPs and the 2013 Salt Lake City Artie Awards, which is a wonderful accomplishment, but has literally nothing to do with Abraham or religion. He's a pianist. He's about as credible as me when I played Puss in Boots and Shrek the Musical. The letter is going to give three lists of contradictions between Joseph Smith translations and the modern Egyptologists. But again, the modern Egyptologists... Oh, Bill, Bill can, we, can we stop there? A guy named Kevin Matthew. Can we stop there on that part? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so sorry, because right now they're dealing with Kevin Matthew. By the way, it's not M-A-T-H-E-Y as they spell it in the video. It's actually M-A-T-H-I-E. I don't know the man, but I looked it up. That's how it's spelled. And yes, he is apparently a proficient pianist, a concert pianist, which is no small potatoes. No, he's not an Egyptologist. But here's the deal. First off, I want to say this. We've got to note this is classic ad hominem argument. Okay, we're not going to deal with what uh, Kevin Matthew has to say. We're going to make fun of the fact that he's not an Egyptologist. Now, if you go back and play that again, I don't know if we have time, but here's the deal. The CES letter does not call Kevin Matthew an Egyptologist. Kevin Matthew does not call himself an Egyptologist. In fact, Kevin Matthew's name doesn't even appear in the CES letter. There's simply a hyperlink that goes to some uh, research that he did, which I'll talk about here in a second because it becomes important. But nobody's calling him an Egyptologist. And you notice that they switch in their discussion to talking about an article that Kevin Matthew wrote and then to triumphantly proclaiming, oh, guess what? He's not even an Egy Egyptologist. Well, of course, the fact is, Nobody claimed he was an Egyptologist. And this is what kind of logical fallacy, Bill Real? Uh, this is a ad hominem. Yes, mixed with? Uh, you tell me. It's straw man. Straw I don't man. Know. Yeah. Straw man. This is, a, this is a combination. It's an ad strawmanum. So you've got the straw. <laughs> an ad strawmanum. <laughs> yes. When you put those two together, you get an ad strawmanum argument. Then the straw man is, oh, he's not even an Egyptologist. Well, he never claimed to be an Egyptologist. So what you're setting up is this idea, oh, he claimed to be an Egyptologist when he never did. You smack that down, and then you have defeated the argument that the other side never made, giving you the appearance of walking triumphantly off the field victorious, when actually you're not defeating anything except something you created and put in the mouth of the other person. And he doesn't need to be an Egyptologist. The only thing in the CES letter is a graphic that shows that there are mistakes made in thematic elements on, is it facsimile one? 
Uh, well, it's actually all three facsimiles. Here's the deal is that what he did was he looked at, guess what? Egyptologists actually did. Oh, by the way, this undercuts their own argument too, because they're saying he's just a pianist. He's not an Egyptologist. So why should we listen to anything he has to say coming from the mouths of two guys sitting in front of a camera who are not Egyptologists? It's like they're sawing off the branch that they're sitting on. In other words, the same reason for discounting anything that Kevin Matthew has to say about Egyptology would apply equally to Kwaku and Brad, who are speaking, because I don't think either one of them are Egyptologists either. And if I were to bring that up to Kwaku, he would probably respond by saying, no, I'm not an Egyptologist, but I'm just, but I've looked at what Egyptologists have to say, and I'm just reporting what they have to say. Well, that's exactly what Kevin Matthew is doing. What he did was he took all three of the facsimiles in the book of Abraham, and what he did was he took what Joseph Smith translated each of those elements in each facsimile, like for facsimile one, each of the different elements. Here's what Joseph Smith said down one side. Here's what Egyptologists say down the other side. So he did that, and then he goes through uh, facsimile two, which is the hypocephalus, does the same thing, which is a bit of a longer list. Here's what Joseph Smith says. Here's what Egyptologists say. And then finally for facsimile three, he does the same thing. Here's what Joseph Smith says. Here's what the Egyptologists say. And the work that Kevin... Matthew put together in coming up with those diagrams and those charts, those are replicated in the CES letter. And that's why there's a link to Kevin Matthew's work. Although his name is not mentioned, a link is given in order to give correct attribution to who it was who gave that or information, collected that information in the first place. I wanted to tell you a funny story because we're going to talk about Robert Rittner here in a second. I was, uh, I was so privileged and delighted to be part of and to be invited into the 13 hour plus interview that John DeLynn did with Robert Rittner in August of this year. And Robert Rittner is a name that's going to become very important as we proceed here. But it was so funny because I don't think this made it into the recording, but there was a lot of prep work that was going on with the Zoom stuff. And and uh, John DeLynn is talking with Robert Rittner about the different images and the different graphics and the different slides they're going to use. And one of them was this slide because John DeLynn used the same um, work by Kevin Matthey with the difference of the interpretations versus uh, what Egyptologists have to say. And he's in facsimile too, okay, the hypocephalus. This is where it's funny. At least I hope it's funny because this has been a long buildup. It's not funny. I'm dead. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to beat ad stromonum. No, it's just, I, 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 it's just a humorous <laughs> anecdote. It's a humorous <laughs> anecdote. But uh, John DeLynn is talking with uh, Robert Rittner and saying, okay, here's facsimile two. Here's what Joseph Smith said. Joseph Smith said uh, it, number one was this. And here's what Egyptologists say number one is. And then he got, and then John DeLynn goes, here's what, here's what Joseph Smith said uh, uh, number two is. And here's what Egyptologists say number two is. And then uh, Robert Rittner very politely interrupted John. And he said, uh, John. And John says, what? And Robert Rittner says, you know I can read these. <laughs> Plus, he's probably the one who wrote the interpretations, right? Like he knows, he knows them inside and out. I know it's just so funny though because here's me and John. We can't read Egyptian, and he's talking to a guy who can. He's saying, you know, I, you don't need to read me the interpretation of what they really say because I can actually read them cold. Yeah, yeah, amen. Okay, I hope it was so. No, it is. Yes. Yeah, so, do you want to jump back into this video and play the rest of this little clip here? Let me see if there's anything else I want to say about this. Um, uh, blah 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 blah. Yeah, I think that basically covers it. We are just touching on some highlights. There's so much that we have to say. We are boiling it down to the bare essentials for purposes of this uh, show, and especially so that we can get some calls in. 
toward the yeah. end. Go ahead. Yeah. And I think we're making good time. We're 20 minutes in and, and here we are. So oh, let, me, let, me, let me give the lead into this, okay? Because now they've talked about Kevin Mappy, who's a pianist. But unfortunately, unfortunately, in the CES letter, there are actually three Egyptologists who are cited and they're quoted with their opinions about uh, Joseph Smith's ability to translate the facsimiles. This is from 1912 in the book that was put together by Reverend Spaulding. And we talked about that at length with um, Robert Ritter. By the way, if you want to find the details and find out exactly how wrong a lot of the claims are in this video, that takes a lot of time. If you want to find out, go to that Robert Rittner interview, either on Mormon Stories or on Radio Free Mormon. But now they've got three Egyptologists. So what are they going to do now? They can't say they're pianists because they're actually Egyptologists. What to do? What to do? Well, we're going to find out what they do now when they go over the top, over the top in the absolutely most spectacular ad hominem arguments I've ever seen. Yeah. So here's the finish of the mathy part. And then we get into the other the other gentleman. The letters referencing is literally just some guy named Kevin Matthew who has nothing to do with Egyptology. If you read the CES letter, keep that in mind. It isn't a Joseph Smith versus the truth. It's Joseph Smith versus a random guy's opinion. And you have no reason to accept this random guy's translation. So letter gives a right. side. Okay. I'm so, yeah. That's some random guy giving his opinion. Right, right. And and now, before they jump into these other Egyptologists that they're about to tear apart, they spend a moment in between talking about the facsimile itself and addressing what uh, Kevin Matthews' graphic is pointing out. And so we'll hit that first, if you don't mind, RFM. Right. Or, Take or that, you want to skip the ahead? intro that I made and just save it for yeah. later. Yeah, a few minutes from now. So here we go. This is the graphic. Let me get to the end here. Random guy's translation. So letter gives a side-by-side -side comparison of the church's drawn-in version of facsimile one and what the real version is supposed to look the like. The real version. The only problem is the real version is a modern creation. If it was in fact the correct version, as verified by other Egyptian manuscripts, I gotta stop. What do you? When he says modern creation, this this isn't a modern cre like it's this is an ancient Egyptian original document, which we'll get into in a moment and make a little laugh at. But this is an ancient Egyptian document. The way this works, this isn't really a recreation. There's there are rituals and beliefs in ancient Egypt, and whenever there is somebody wealthy who is having an embalming done or uh, wants to have these ritual scrolls put into their uh, cacophic. Is that how am, I, how am I saying that right? Is it a well? Essentially, their coffin Often. tomb. Yeah, the sarcophagus. Yes, and essentially they have these documents placed in, and these documents are handmade on papyri and stuck in. Uh, this is an ancient Egyptian document. Anyway, let's continue here. This is their guide to the afterlife. By the way, oh, if you could go back to that picture, I just want to uh, speak a word on behalf of Kwaku here. Because uh, I want to try and represent him as accurately as I possibly can and as fairly. Um, what he's saying here is that the top, uh, I'm pointing on my screen, that doesn't make any sense to you, but <laughs> the top figure is actually the papyrus that Joseph Smith had with the reconstruction that he did. Everything that's yellow is the actual papyri. The different places where there is no papyri is a reconstruction. And up there where it says number three, where it looks like a bald-headed guy. This is basically Yul Brenner taking a knife to Charlton Heston. So you've got a bald-headed guy up there. He's got a knife in his hand. It kind of looks like a it kind of looks like a butter knife. I'm not sure if he's sacrificing him or if he's buttering him like a piece of toast. But you've got a, a bald head, a knife. But let's just focus on the bald head for now, okay? That is never a bald head in this scenario. This is the god Anubis. 
who has a jackal head, all right? Jackal head, and he's doing one of two things. He's, he's either embalming Osiris, who happens to be the guy on the couch, right? Prior to his resurrection, he's a Jesus figure, and Robert Eder talked about that as well. He's a dying, resurrecting God. He's either embalming him, or in a different scene, he's present, Anubis still with the jackal head, is resurrecting Osiris from the couch. And it's generally believed, like Lanny Bell, who's an Egyptologist, uh, says that he thinks that this is probably a resurrection scene, which is why the two legs on the figure that Joseph Smith identifies as Abraham, but Israeli Osiris are actually moving. So there appears to be movement there. There appears to be a resurrection scene, but that's supposed to be Anubis's head, the jackal-headed God. Now, if you go to the one below it. Uh, let me try to do that. Let's see here. All right, drum roll, please. By side comparison of the church's drawn in version of facts. There you go. This uh -huh. is This is a modern recreation, okay? This is a modern recreation. By the way, and if you notice what's in the CES letter, it actually indicates that it's a modern recreation. He says the following image is what facsimile one is really supposed to look like based on Egyptology and the same scene discovered elsewhere in Egypt. Okay, so this is not an original. This is a recreation. It is. Uh, it's not for sure, but it's likely this is what it is. And you'll see that the bald headed guy has a jackal head now like he's supposed to. And there's other things going on in the scene, which we talked about with Robert Rittner. But the main thing is, I'm, some, I'm sure something you're going to want to talk about now. Go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if you're pointing at what I think you are. But if you'll notice in the Joseph Smith rendition, both hands are kind of coming up and doing their thing. But in these resurrection scenes, usually what's going on is the left hand is holding the genitals uh, as he is about to impregnate his wife in the form of a bird. I also want to note, and I won't go back to the original image. But for listeners and viewers, you're welcome to go search it out. Facsimile, I think it's facsimile one. Um, when you look at it, it's pretty obvious if you've seen enough lion couch scenes that the bald-headed guy drawn in is sitting on the physical frame of Anubis. The dress, the garb, the, um, the uh, stature of thinness and the legs and the color and all that – it matches essentially the Anubis we see on a bunch of other lion couch scenes, which we'll also get to in a moment. Um, but just recognize in these pictures, you never, ever, ever, never, ever see both hands in the air. You never see a bald man's head and in replacement of Anubis. There are things that just are never part of the thematic elements that you find in the, in this particular ancient Egyptian document. Right, and Anubis is represented as black here uh, because he has dark skin. It's the dark fur of the jackal. By the way, something that just occurred to me, I think it's pretty obvious now when, when I see it and it occurs to me, that what they did to get the bald-headed guy for Anubis, if you have that too. Yeah, uh, let me, yeah, let me try to see here. The bald-headed guy for Anubis, if we go back just a touch. Yeah. Uh, so the letter gives a side-by-side. -side there we are. There you go. Yeah, where did they get that from? Well, they just took the head of Osiris that was already there on the couch. And they yeah. flipped it and put it on top of Anubis. You can see that underneath him, he's dark colored because he's a jack. Yeah. So and, and that's really, completely incorrect. Yeah, and really quickly, just to note, recently I shared the actual printing press plate that was used for this. And you can see the beak of Anubis is uh, essentially carved out with some kind of tool. Um, and, and we know from the church history department and certain people within the church history department that there's acknowledgement that there have been some uh, adjustments to that plate uh, along the way. 
Right. Just to be clear, that's facsimile three. Oh, I'm sorry, but it is Anubis still, right? Yes, it was yeah, Anubis sorry. before they cut off his snout and made him into a little slave. Yeah. So, so we we already have precedent. There's no qualms about having to alter any of this or to draw on things that you don't think belong. Um, the church and Joseph Smith, to be honest, uh, have no problem um, with that. Very good. So, go ahead. Well, I was just I was just going to say I heard a voice there. Give Brother Joseph uh, a break. Give brother <laughs> there it is. Who was that? That Who was uh, Neil brother Anderson, break? member of the Quorum of the Twelve, asking us to give Brother Joseph a break. Uh, so here we'll just we'll continue here with the video. The CES letters show those exact Egyptian manuscripts. It's because there's an incredible dishonesty to the idea that the CES letters facsimile is the end all be all. The funerary couch scenes we do have look like this and this and huh. this. Okay, can you go back there for just a second on those? Yeah, I, I love it. I don't I don't I think this one. I don't think this worked in their favor. I uh let's go let's go one like by this. one. Oh, there's one. Okay, Wait, what, what do you notice here, yeah. RFM? Actually, I'm using my cursor and you can't see the cursor that I'm using on my computer screen. But look at the head. Okay. Jackal head. Okay. Okay. Next. Next one. And this. Jackal head. <laughs> and this. Jackal head. <laughs> Hold on. There's one more. If they don't quite get oh, they didn't show it. it. Now, now, here's the other funny thing is that they actually took these scenes. Yeah. They took this exact sequence of scenes of jackal headed Anubis from the CES letter. They're, they're announcing this as if this supports their point when it doesn't, but they're not mentioning that they actually take it from the CES letter where Jeremy Reynolds put it in there in order to show that in each of all these different instances, yeah, it's a jackal head. Yeah, it's a jackal head. Um, we could go several directions here. I know we've got a few things planned for this. Do you want me, let's finish this clip. I think it ends in about 20 seconds and we'll go from there. Creation is off and looks different from the original. Why can't he show us the original? The letter claims that the Egyptian. Well, okay, hold on. We're probably going to address that, right? Let RFM, why can't yeah. we provide the original to the document that we have where the pieces are missing that Joseph Smith drawn in? RFM, where is the original? Isn't well, this isn't know. isn't this the original? This is the original. This, is the original. <laughs> this, is. this was hand done. It's broken off. Yeah. So what they're apparently saying is, why can't you show us the original? Well, because the pieces got broken off and lost. Yeah, that's this is the original. All right, yeah. here we go. And I, and I would I would turn that back and I would say, okay, if you're insisting on getting originals, can you show us Quaku and Brad and Fair Mormon who are behind this video? Can you show us the original of an ancient Egyptian? papyrus that actually has written in Egyptian, the book of Abraham. No, they can't. That's the real problem here. It doesn't exist. We could find all the, we could find all the long scrolls in the world and there wouldn't be a book of Abraham. No scroll long enough. Book of the Dead and the Book of Abraham have no thematic ties, and that's false. The entire Egyptian Book of the Dead is online free for you to read and we'll even link it in and I think we actually went a little bit past that. So it, uh, the artistic liberty here, we wanted to go into this, right? So let's, um, let me see if I can pull something up for you and uh, we can talk about. While you're pulling it up, Bill. Yeah. What Kwaku just said there was that the CES letter says that there are no thematic ties between the book of Abraham and the book of the dead. I've read the CES letter section on the book of Abraham now in the last week. Remember last week I said I hadn't read it. Well, I, I did read it because I wanted to compare 
what the Fair Mormon video was saying about it with what the CS letter actually said. This is the October 2017, the most recent permutation, yeah. which is available on the Internet in a PDF. OK, uh, I could be wrong. I read it pretty carefully. Maybe I missed it, but I was looking for this statement about the Book of the Dead and no thematic parallels with the Book of Abraham. Uh, it doesn't say it. It's not in there. In right. fact, the Book of the Dead is not even mentioned, I don't think, in the CES letter. So they're making another claim. It's another straw man. They're saying the CES letter says something it doesn't say. And then they're saying, ah, but that's false. Well, it might be. I, I'm not even sure it's false, but it would have a better chance of being false if, it, if the CES letter actually said it in the first place. Yeah. Which one do you want to show right now? Do you want to show the whole thing or do you want to just pick a few out here? And Oh, 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 okay. I got to set this one up. I'm sorry. Now, this is another setup. <laughs> this is this, okay? Because what happens is that when you've got these types of scenes that are ancient and authentic, and some of which we saw with the different Anubis, 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 what we have here is we have, there's a, there's a template, okay? It's not exactly the same scene every time with everybody and every element in it exactly the same. It's not printed on a printing press. There's a little bit of artistic license that's able to be used, but there are certain elements that show up and uh, it's, they can be re re rearranged a little bit, maybe a different color, maybe a different style. Basically, it's the same thing. And so what you have here is a Venn diagram, all right? And the Venn di diagram is the one with the circles. So if you got one circle over here, and I'm gonna try and make a circle here on the screen, okay? This is the accepted area of variations in these ancient lion couch scenes, all right? And what the argument is that they're trying to make is that because every single lion couch scene that we have is not exactly the same, then anything goes and any reconstruction is acceptable. Any reconstruction has a place at the table, including Joseph Smith's reconstruction of it has a place at the table because the ancient ones uh, have a limited amount of variation. Joseph Smith is actually way up here in this corner, okay? It's not down here. There's no overlap between the circles. And that is not correct, all right? Just because there are variations on a theme in legitimate lion couch scenes doesn't mean you can suddenly start getting a Yule Brenner head instead of a jackal head and say, hey, it's okay. We're having a knife in his hand when there's no knife in any of the hands. And there was, I think you're going to show this one, there was somebody on the internet who came up with a wonderful recreation of their own of facsimile one to illustrate this point. Is that the one you have? Uh, yeah, but I just lost it. Give me two seconds here. Something funny happened. Not sure what it was, but I'll bring it back up. Okay, because while you're doing that, what Robert Rittner had said was, when Egyptologists look at these scenes, they're so familiar to them that it would be like if we, who are not Egyptologists, were looking at something that we're familiar with, like perhaps um, a picture of Mary and the baby Jesus, a Madonna and child. And there's all sorts of variations of that, different colors, different poses, but we know what it is. We know what it's supposed to be. And he said, he gave this example. If you took the face of Mary and put a dog there, okay? And in the face of Jesus, you put a cat's face there. We would look at that. We'd say, wait, that's not right. right. That, that, somebody's been monkeying with this. This is some kind of cruel joke. Okay, this isn't the way the original should be. He says that when an Egyptologist such as himself, by the way, world-class, world-renowned Egyptologist, Robert. He's Rick, the guy. He's the guy everybody goes to to get the get the official expert opinion. Yes, absolutely. 
he says that when Egyptologists, when he looks at Joseph Smith's recreation of facsimile one, it is just as glaringly obvious that it's wrong as it would be for other people to look at a Madonna and child with a dog face and a cat face. Or this. Boom. There so it is. If, if anything goes, RFM, then anything goes. And we can put anything anywhere, right? That's why this is so brilliant, because I laughed when I saw this. So instead of uh, a, a jackal head, you've got an alien's head. Instead of a knife, you have what appears to be a phaser from Star Trek. And then, it, <laughs> and then over him is hovering a, a flying saucer. So if anything goes, if anything has a place at the table, any kind of reconstruction, then this is just as legitimate as Joseph Smith's reconstruction. Yeah, in fact, you had I, another one. Yeah, well, I found one. I was searching for uh, lion couch scenes, and I came across uh, this one. Uh, this one I thought was really intriguing. This is Abraham upon upon the altar, and that is the uh, the priest there. And Abraham is has his hands up in the air, got his feet up in the air, and uh, this is this is a lion couch scene that I found. That is a wonderful scene, and it illustrates the point again, because we are familiar with this, right? We know what this is. This is a parent over a baby changing the diaper, and then you stick a knife in there, and you go, wait a second. That doesn't belong here. That's an incorrect reconstruction, and a very humorous one, too, I might add. Yeah, yeah. In fact, this was something I think that was sent to you or somebody else had, had put together, correct? I found it. Yeah, I found it on the internet. I'm sorry. I don't know who did it. Otherwise, I give them credit right now. Yeah, and I want to pull uh, one more thing up here, which is all of these other lion couch scenes. I put a little graphic together today. Uh, you and I are going to disappear for a minute, but you can talk about these if you want. Okay. So, yeah, jackal head, jackal head, jackal head, jackal head, jackal head, jackal. Yeah, there's a lot of jackal heads here. All jackal. Be a jackal head. That's yeah. because it's Anubis. He's the god of the dead for crying out loud. Yeah. In fact, RFM, if there was, if there was uh, images of bald heads on top where Anubis's head normally is, would we would see it at fair Mormon conferences. We would see it on the front page of the Enzyme. We would see it uh, touted up on some thing on general conference up on the, on the projector. We would see it plastered everywhere. The reason we don't see it, because it doesn't exist anywhere. You cannot just play willy-nilly with these thematic elements. That's not how this, this works. There are rules to the game, and Joseph Smith isn't playing by the rules. In fact, he's moving the goalpost every moment by moment. Right. Something that, of course, he didn't know at the time. Nobody around him knew. Nobody knew Egyptian at the time. It's only been in the intervening 180 years, I think, now. Yeah, 180 years. Yeah, the things have changed, and now we can see that his reconstructions didn't make any sense in light of real Egyptology. Yeah, yeah. And so now we get to the part you were leading up to, which is these three other Egyptologists, and what is said about these guys. Can we roll the tape on that one? Over the top on the ad hominem, please. Here we go. One interesting part of the CES letter is that it constantly cites non-LDS Egyptologists without actually citing these Egyptologists. Only if you are cited and one is a musical theater director. Some of the other three are Egyptologists who died two centuries ago. It's likely that modern Egyptologists wouldn't agree with their work, given they are outdated. Also, these three Egyptologists quoted by- oh, All right, can we stop there for a minute? There's already three things that he said. This is, this is one of the benefits of going so quickly, is that 
uh, it's hard to catch up with somebody in order to actually understand what it is they're saying and respond to it in real time. It's amazing that there's just not fecal matter just flying out of his mouth for, due to all the bullshit that's being said by this guy. Well, uh, if you can go back here, can you go back to the beginning and can yeah. you stop when I yell stop? Okay, let's do it. Here we go. Okay. Absolutely. Well, one interesting part of the CES letter is that it constantly cites non-LDS Egyptologists. Okay, first off, who would you expect to cite if you wanted a professional opinion? Would you quote Gary Molstein and John Gee or the rest of the academic world where there's a consensus? <laughs> okay, I'll no, move absolutely. on. You, you can stop me where you want. I just had to jump in there. Now, now as he continues... Ask yourself the question, is he saying that it actually does cite non-LDS apologists or Egyptologists, or does it cite them? Because he goes back and forth on this, if yeah. you start at this part. Yeah, he, he he talks out both sides of his mouth. By the way, the actual, the actual truth is, if you look at the CES letter, yeah, it does cite to these three uh, Egyptologists and quotes from them. Yeah, he's talking about both sides of his mouth. The shit is flying everywhere. Here we go. Without actually citing these Egyptologists. Only if you are cited. And Hold okay, on. Okay. So he said they're so not he, citing Egyptologists. He keeps citing to non-LDS Egyptologists without ever citing to them. Only a few are cited. Yeah, I don't even know. And this is scripted, by the way. When, I don't even know if he's reading his cue cards correctly. No, when you see the side view of the papers these guys are holding, you know they're all holding their papers. And but if you if you look at the side view, the papers are blank on both sides. They got nothing there. It's a complete script up in front of them. You and I are working off stuff. We've been planning and preparing for a long time, and we're doing a lot of this off the cuff. But these guys don't have anything written on the paper. They're reading something that's been written for them, and they can't even say it right at that. Uh, at least you and I, as we're going off the cuff, need to be granted a little bit of charity. These guys had plenty of time to write the paper. And presumably, if they got something wrong, they could go back and take two, take three, take four until they got it right. Yeah, you and I are doing it live. Now, just this next little bit. This is hey. next little bit. Yell stop. What is a musical theater director? There, you want to keep going? Keep going. Some of I like the apologists who died two centuries ago. Stop. <laughs> okay. okay, two it's centuries really ago. <laughs> the Book of Abraham wasn't even written two centuries ago. We can't get an opinion from anybody on Joseph Smith's translation process of the Book of Abraham 200 years ago. Right, because 200 years ago, correct me, because I'm not really good at math. That's why I went into law, but I think that 200 years ago is 1820. Joseph hadn't even told you his first account of the first vision yet. He wouldn't tell that for another 12 years. So and it got locked up right away. And he's saying they died 200 years ago. Okay, the three quotes, which we're going to get to in this um, the CS letter, were written for a pamphlet in 1912. And I'm presuming that if these three gentlemen wrote in 1912, they probably were alive then. And actually, James Breasted, who's one of them that they mentioned, who was like the god of Egyptology at the time, is still very much uh, reputed as such. Um, he didn't pass away until 1835, which is actually less than 100 years ago. But it's important for them. Why, why are they making this mistake? Well, it's important for them to push them as far back as possible to try and render their opinions as remote and inconsequential as possible. That's yeah. one. This is a fallacy argument. This is a fallacy way of uh, belittling arguments. As you point out, it's a trick that's been done all through the ages. Put as much distance as you possibly can in time between you and the people who disagree with you. Right. And if you go to this next little bit, and I, I won't spend much time on it. Here we go. I think that modern Egyptologists wouldn't agree with their work, given they are outdated. 
Also, it's likely that modern Egyptologists would not agree with their work, given that it's outdated. Excuse me. The fact is, is that we did a 13 hour interview with Robert Rittner, who, by the way, is a modern Egyptologist. Kwaku, yeah. he's a modern Egyptologist. He's the one that you're not going to mention because you're he's top shelf. He is top shelf. And we talked about this. And actually, he does agree with their comments about the facsimiles. If, that they, if we were to poll a thousand Egyptologists, and I don't know how many professional academic Egyptologists are out there, but if we were to poll a thousand of them, how many out of a thousand do you think would agree with these old Egyptologists who are outdated and nobody would agree with them on this, on this topic? Well, it depends on if John Gee and Carrie Muelstein were in that thousand. Let's count them. Okay, 998. <laughs> 998 out of a thousand. And that's, by the way, I'm, I don't think we're exaggerating. I think we literally could ask a thousand Egyptologists, present all this data to them, and 998, with the exception of Guy and Molstein, would agree. And by the way, um, when it comes to Egyptology anyway, Egyptology in Molstein's mind can't even uh, change his perception on the Book of Abraham. Listen to him here. So I do not think uh, that it has been or can be disproved because in the end, the Book of Abraham is not about Egyptology. It's not about Egyptology. So we're just winging it anyway. Nothing could be presented in Egyptology that could disprove the Book of Abraham because I've already made the assumption that nothing in Egyptology can disprove the Book of Abraham. Did you do a double take the first time you heard Carrie Muelstein, Egyptologist at BYU and <laughs> say that the book of Abraham has nothing to do with Egyptology? Yeah, nothing. It's got nothing to do with it. And he's an Egyptologist. So then Carrie, and I wish I had a beat button, but why the would you even then talk about Egyptology when it comes to the book of Abraham? Because it has nothing to do with it. I think there's a reason why he has to say that. And that's because Egyptology, even though he's devoted his life to its study, as well as John Giaz, doesn't support the book of Abraham. Therefore, you're forced into this position of having to say something as strange and jaw dropping as the book of Abraham has nothing to do with Egyptology. Yeah, that's it. You got it. He spent his whole life trying to prove it through through Egyptology. And now he's going to say this. Yeah, he he was he went through school, became an apologist for the church in an, a, an official capacity working for BYU and all of that training in Egyptology. And what he's essentially saying is it's useless when trying to have a discussion about the book of Abraham's authenticity because it has nothing to do with Egyptology. It is out the window. Now, Bill, I'm going to have to ask you something. This is unscripted. Okay. I'm seeing by that old clock on the wall that it's 6.06. We've been at this for 46 minutes now. We've got at least as much material to go over this plan. And I just want to ask you what you'd like to do. Do you want to open it for phone calls or, or what, how would you like to proceed, my friend? Well, I personally would like to go a little further. Let's go a little long. We've got 131 people with us right now. It's the most we've had all night. I think people are excited and entertained by what we're doing. I'd like to keep going. It's up to you. If you've got any kind of time schedule, you got to be home soon or something, we can cut it short. I have such a busy social schedule, Bill. Yeah, we can go a little longer. Let's go. Let's do it. So let's play some more tape. And they are outdated. Also, these three Egyptologists quoted by Jeremy Runnels were literally open white supremacists. <laughs> Hail our people. Hail victory. <laughs> Hold on. That was the CES <laughs> letter. I'm going to back up just a moment here and try to see, play that a little bit again. I'll try to pause it. Hail our people. Okay. So 
First off, they're showing uh, the CES letter conference. I, there's never been there's never been a CES letter conference, but I have been to Fair Mormon conferences, and this looks a lot like a Fair Mormon conference. Uh, I don't know what they're trying to get at here. This seems like a little ad hominem. Well, it's, not gonna ha- it's not going to happen until next February. See, it's February 2021. But this is this is over the top ad hominem. So. We've got one guy who says things we don't like. Well, he's not an Egyptologist, so he's a pianist. We don't have to deal with him. But the three Egyptologists that are quoted, uh, they're white supremacists. Okay, we're not going to deal with what they say. They're not even going to quote what it is that they actually are quoted as saying. We're going to deal with them by saying, hey, they're white supremacists. We don't need to deal with their, their opinions about Egyptology and the Book of Abraham. Right, right. Let's play a little further here. Well, hail victory. No joke. Archibald Sacy thought African people were midway between white people and apes. James Breasted was a white supremacist who called Mediterraneans barbarians who were holding back society. And Flinders Petrie was one of the founders of the eugenics movement. I kid you not. The CES letter quotes modern Egyptologists that are either A, not Egyptologists, but award-winning pianists from the Salt Lake City Audi Awards, B, were Egyptologists who died 200 years ago with discredited work, or C, people who were basically Nazi. So a musician and three Nazis. Ah, sounds like a weird sitcom. (laughs) So... There's a lot of ad hominem going on there. Uh, when you, well, that's, you essentially that's don't quite essential ad hominem. Yeah. You can't get any more than the Nazis, right? Right. 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 As Indiana Jones says in the third uh, movie, Nazis. I hate these guys. Everybody hates Nazis. They're the ones who are safe to hate, right? But to compare these people, by the way, he says their work is discredited because of their yeah. view about racism. And by the way, okay. Nazis is way over the top. Obviously, they were not Nazis. I mean, I think I just mentioned that James Preston died in 1835. So I think that would be chronologically a little difficult for him to have actually been a member of the Nazi, the National Socialist Party of Germany. But but this is why I think we need to give an award to Fair Mormon for the most outlandish and over the top ad hominem argument ever made or that I've ever seen. A few things that you know, when a person makes an ad hominem argument, there's a reason for it, okay? And the reason for it is because if you're going to actually address the substance of the argument, you know you're going to lose. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, right. If you avoid it at all costs, if you avoid the substance of the argument against the book of Abraham at all cost, and all you have are fallacies that you use, then you already, the audience already knows the strength of your argument against the actual substance of the conversation, of the issue, of the debate. Right. And so, well, you know, this is kind of like the idea of presentism. You've heard of yeah. that before, haven't you, Bill? The idea of presentism? Yeah, the idea that you essentially say that what somebody said back then, even no matter how well it fits into its milieu and its cultural context, if we today, Look at that behavior in the past and go, that's atrocious. We should disregard that person. That person is a schmuck. We should have nothing to do with them or anything they say or anything she does. Um, And in their day, they would have been socially accepted as the norm. Then what we are doing is practicing uh, presentism. Now, I I remember RFM that 
Maybe maybe these guys don't know what presentism is. Maybe they're just following into that trap and they don't really know what it means. I, I do don't I don't think that's the case. This was the little <laughs> clip off of Mo Wives and Mo Problems. Let's see what they have to say here. Where they're trying to defend Joseph Smith's marrying 14-year-old girls. Right. So this is after their, the Mo Wives, Mo Problems. They're talking about polygamy, and they're essentially addressing Joseph Smith's behavior with extremely young women, as young as the age of 14, which was two of them. I hear people say there was only one that was 14. There were two. Um, and there were 15-year-olds, and there were 16-year-olds. Okay, though, Bill. Say that again. If it was only one, it would have been okay, though. Yeah. If there was only one, it would be okay. <laughs> um there are two. And then there's 15, Lucy Walker. There are 16-year-olds. There are 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. And Joseph Smith is a man in his late 30s. So here is, if, if we're going to argue these guys don't understand presentism and they're also consistent in their arguments, let's see if they stay consistent here. The facts don't line up. The other teenagers Joseph was sealed to shouldn't be viewed through the lens of what we call presentism. Oh, it was the 19th huh. century. Sometimes people were married when they were teenagers. Presentism is viewing past cultures through the lens of your specific modern culture and subculture. An example of that <laughs> is to say, Abraham Lincoln was not for same-sex marriage. He was a homophobe. Well, isn't that the same? Um, <laughs> I am I so bad when I drop the F-bomb. Isn't that the same mm, argument that they just made in the other conversation, I anyway, okay. You're not supposed to watch these videos in sequence. You see, you need to have some space between them so you can forget that the argument that they're using, that presentism should not be applied to Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy, but it should be practiced to Egyptologists from uh, 100 years ago who did not think that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham facsimiles correctly. Yeah, yeah, they are using it one way when it benefits them, and they're not using it in another context where it does not benefit them. I think that there's a problem here. You and I did apologetics for years. I served with Fair Mormon. You served in various places where you wrote articles for blogs and for various uh, publications on the web, uh, always giving kind of this apologetic responses to these issues and evidences of the church's restored gospel. And at some point, our integrity was at stake. And we had to stop. We had to step away from going like, hey, I can't do it this way, guys. I, I remember being in Fair Mormon and going, I can't do it this way, guys. I can't be dishonest. I can't lie to people and act like all these conversations add up a certain way and I can give a certain response and it's the best answer. It isn't. Now, I want to play another 14 or so seconds here and right. finish off this little comment and then we'll get to you. Well, in his culture, that concept wasn't even something people spoke about. Nazis didn't even exist when one of those guys, at least, made the comments he did. Let's go a little further. Judging a 19th century American by 21st century standards is called presentism and makes everyone <laughs> their credibility to be sacrificed at the altar of inevitable societal progress. There it is. RFM. Oh, baby. These guys are not consistent, and you can see it. They talk out both sides of their mouth every step of the way. They do. And Fair Mormon has their scholars who've written this script, okay? And they know it, and they're having these cannon fodder guys go out there and say this ridiculous stuff. But doesn't this happen frequently in apologetics where you'll use one line of argumentation over here, then another place you're using a contradictory line of argumentation. And it's okay as long as you're doing it to defend the church, even though you're being inconsistent in the way you're applying the same line of argumentation. You know, as H.P. Lovecraft, 
who in one of my favorite quotes from him said, uh, I believe it's the most merciful thing in the universe is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Mm. And the most merciful thing to fair Mormon would be the inability of you and I to correlate the contents of these videos, because when we correlate them, they explode. It achieves critical mass. And we see that they're using double standards of yeah. argumentation. Yeah. You and I have been doing this for years. And as we've done this, nobody's ever been able to take uh, podcast material from you, podcast material from me, and go, these guys don't have integrity. These guys are contradicting themselves. These guys are, are doing a double message. These guys are doing it on one side when it works for them, and then they criticize it when it doesn't. We've been consistent. And one of the things that pisses the hell out of me is when somebody is just flat out lying to people's faces, and the people they're lying to, they know aren't informed. They know they don't have the data. They know they don't have the information. And so they know they can push it past them. And that's the game that Fair Mormon and these two boobs are doing. Are we back to the tits videos? Well, we can. We, I, I don't, I, anytime you want to show tits videos, I'm in. You call them two boobs. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Um, so from here, do you want to talk any more about these three or do you want to move directly into uh, the reiteration of Kwaku of uh, Stephen Smoot's uh, evidences? Well, let me see here. I think I'm just scrolling here through my my outline. Um, no, no, no. Oh, my gosh. The big thing. Here's the big thing. If you actually look at the CES letter, they have just categorized the different people who are quoted about the Book of Abraham in the CES letter as a pianist, right? some dead guys whose work has been discredited or basically Nazis. That was the last thing that they just said. What they have done is they have completely omitted Robert Rittner. Yeah. And you remember, I was talking to you on the phone, this is a few days ago, and I still hadn't read this thing about Abraham and the CES letter. And I was talking to you on the phone, I was out for a walk, I was away from my computer, and uh, I was saying to you, hey, can you look this up on, can you look at the CES letter on your computer? Because I will bet you, Bill Real, I'll bet you $100 right now that Robert Rittner is mentioned in the CES letter. And you said, really? And you said, y'all look it up. And I said, no, 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 wait, you got to take the bet first before you look it up. And you said, no, I'm not taking the bet. And you look it up. And of course, Robert Rittner is mentioned in the CES letter. In fact, the link is given to the article that he wrote criticizing the LDS church essay on the book of Abraham. And it's right after these three quotes yeah. from three individuals that they just got done dismissing as yeah, well. Yeah, it's the top of that page. Yeah, it's the top of that page. Um, notice they spent so much time on Matthew, and he's not mentioned once. And right. again, he, he's not writing anything. He's just taking information from other Egyptologists. But Robert Rittner, who you and John DeLynn interviewed for 13 hours and deconstructed every single facet of the Book of Abraham, its history, and the translation process. And we end up here with Robert Rittner being mentioned, he's the one elephant in the room that they don't want to talk about no matter what. Absolutely. They can't dismiss him as a white supremacist. Apparently, they can't dismiss him as a Nazi. They can't dismiss him as a pianist. He's not and old and outdated either. No, he's still alive and kicking, and they know perfectly well. You think the people at Fair Mormon don't know that he just did a 13-hour interview with Mormon Stories and Radio Free Mormon in August? of this year you think they don't know that anyway they've all listened the to it some people have probably left fair having lost their faith after having listened to those 13 hours 
Well, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're right. But the fact is that regardless of whether they know about the 13 hour interview, they do know that it's right there in the CES letter. And they are not only not going to mention Robert Ritter's name, they are going to frame the contents of the CES letter in such a way as to make it sound like he's not even included. And, you know, if you call somebody a Nazi, it's because you're scared of their arguments and you don't want to address it. If you don't mention them entirely, then you're really scared of them and you don't want to even people to know about their existence. And I think that's what's going on here. And they're right to be scared of Robert Rittner. Yeah. All right. Um, are we ready for the last little clip here? Please. Okay. So I'll just give some context. Steven Smoot. Um, we've run into Steven Smoot before, haven't we, RFM? He are sounds you, you, familiar. Yeah. Do you mean Steven Bukakis Smoot? Yeah. Steven uh, Bukaki Smoot. Wait, wait, hold on. What's that down at the bottom there? Hold on. It says uh, it is an uh, recip three or more. Oh, hold on. Usually the recipient either. Oh, yeah. Never mind. Okay. So Stephen Bukaki Smoot gives a synopsis of all the evidences of the Book of Abraham uh, from an apologetic standpoint. And, um, but he's not, he, it's, he's talking academically and he's rambling on. And so Kwaku jumps in, and it's all scripted, obviously, but Kwaku jumps in and is essentially the uh, layman in the room who can explain it in layman's terms. And here he goes. Abraham. Wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me that if Joseph Smith made up the book of Abraham, he gets the pagan god named Elkanah that matches up in name, possible theme, and supposed area of Elkanah Aratz. He correctly guessed that Olishem was a plane that existed. He got the correct name of the sun's path through the sky in the pyramid texts that line up with the description of the cosmos. He was right that ancient Egyptians in Abraham's day performed human sacrifice. He correctly guessed that Abraham was rescued by an angel, that God showed Abraham the pre-existence, and that he was taught astronomy in relation to the heavens. Uh, yeah. Okay, so really quickly here, um, let me just say that if you're if you're not informed, you and I used to love this stuff when they would be present these kinds of things. You and I would go like, yeah, the church is true. There's all these evidences. The church is definitely true. There's no debate. I can't believe people even pick on us. I can't believe people aren't joining the church. Look, we're at we're at nine million. Now we're at ten million. Now we're at twelve million, and we get so excited. Um, now we're at sixteen million. Now we're at yeah. fifteen million. Now we're at thirteen million. Yeah, and uh, so. I wanted to just show, just to knock a few of these out of the park. Give me uh, just a second. This may be a little difficult here. Um, yeah, go ahead and do that. And by the way, if anybody wants to find out the details of this, once again, Robert Rittner, Robert Rittner, Robert Rittner, the 13-hour interview, we go through each of these in detail, and he shows why these arguments really don't hold water from an Egyptologist's point of view. Yeah. If I turn it on the slideshow, it blocks both my monitors. So I'm just going to leave it open like this. But you, the audience can read this. Olishim was a plane that existed. So let me read this. The plane of Olishim is the location mentioned in the book of Abraham, while Yulisim, the actual location that they found, is a location mentioned in an ancient document. Yulisim is not an exact fit for the name. Similar names for random locations occur just as happen chance uh, or happenstance. And it is a bad fit as it doesn't match the location as presented in the book of Abraham. Even John Gee acknowledges Ur should be in the same plane and about 20 to 20, I'm sorry, five to 20 miles from Olishim, which Ulisim is not. That's John Gee. Ulisim is not a match for Olishim. That's the first one. Second, 
Kwaku said they correctly guessed human sacrifice existed in Abraham's day. The guy they get this information from is a guy by the name of Harko Williams. Harko Williams was contacted by a post-Mormon and asked, do you, are you okay with your data, your research on human sacrifice in Egypt being used to support the book of Abraham and the way that it poses human sacrifice in that book? Um, Can I ask you a question? Please. Bill, is Harko Williams an Egyptologist? Uh, I think, I don't know if he's an Egyptologist. He might be an archaeologist um, by trade, but he yeah. does study Egyptian archaeology and is an expert in Egyptology, yeah. well, even if not an Egyptologist. Um, and again, the church, the church and its apologists quote him to use his research to show, this is what Kerry Molstein means when he stands at the uh, podium and he says, there is human sacrifice in Egypt. He's pointing at Harko Williams's research. The LDS Church in its gospel uh, topics essay also mentions this. Harko Williams was recently asked, does the description of human sacrifice found within the book of Abraham match the type of human sacrifice your research discusses in your book, Crime, Cult, and Capital Punishment? Harko, still alive, not an old guy who's outdated, still alive, was kind enough to respond, quote, Dear Sir, the biblical, and he means book of Abraham, um, passage does not conform to what the Moala text describes as attentive reading of the argumentation set forth in my article will immediately show. In other words, if you pay attention to what I wrote, it's not a good fit. This isn't a correspondence. This is not a correlation. This isn't something we can pull out and, and use for this argument. He says, my article has been publicly published and therefore can be used by anyone. However, I fail to see how my work, which does not have the intention to support any ideology and which proposes an interpretation that is completely at loggerheads with the suggestion you make, can be stated to support your truth claims. He thinks this guy's a believer. And he, so he's trying to be kind and he's still coming across really strong. I strongly object to any statement in your publication suggesting I do support these claims with best regards, Harko Williams. Now, do you have something to say there? Right. I was just going to say that what this person did is they had sent them the passage from the book of Abraham chapter one, where it talks about the yeah. attempted sacrifice of Abraham and asked him for his opinion on that. Yeah. The the next thing Kwaku mentions is that Abraham was rescued by an angel. That's the same thing as the book of Abraham. Um, no. In certain ancient texts, Abraham is rescued by God as he's about to be thrown into a furnace at the command of King Nimrod. And in the book of Abraham, he's rescued by an angel before being sacrificed on an altar by the priest of Elkanah. They're two very different things. The strength of a parallel is gauged on the strength of its similarities, which there is in uh, divine being rescuing Abraham. But the context of those two rescues are completely different. And if other explanations such as coincidence can be just as much or more easily explained as a rational explanation for that, re for that issue, then you can just go with the fact that it's just a coincidence. Um, and then lastly, he was taught. Oh, can I go back to that? Please. Can I go back to that? Yeah, Sorry. go ahead. Just because I think it's important to note at this point, which I think many of the listeners recognize and are probably shouting right now, is that the story about uh, Abraham being thrown into the furnace by Nimrod in Babylon and rescued by God or an angel from the furnace was in uh, the Adam Clark Bible commentary under the book of Daniel. 
And we know that the Adam Clark Bible commentary was relied on by Joseph Smith. He had a copy, he read from it, he was familiar with his contents. So that story, we understand, was in a book that Joseph Smith perused and used in his translation project. So it becomes less and less miraculous when you know that he had access to the story, even the one that is not an exact match, but does involve an attempted sacrifice of Abraham in Babylon. Yeah. And the last one here is that, uh, oh, I'm sorry. That last one here was that he was taught astronomy. So Fair Mormon makes the acknowledgement. You've pointed this out numerous times. In fact, you've pointed out to Kwaku, even though he's making this argument again, and we know this argument has severe holes in it. He was taught astronomy, Abraham was. Um, and there are ancient documents that show that, Joe, that Abraham was taught astronomy on some level, something about the stars and the cosmos. And um, the argument from apologists is that he couldn't have known it. And it's so amazing that we find it in these old documents that Joseph couldn't have had. But the reality is Fair Mormon acknowledges that he did have documents. He did have access to books and things that did have the same story in it. Fair Mormon, this is off their site, quote, some people have asked what might have been available to Joseph Smith when he translated the book. The book of Josephus was known to Joseph Smith, and it is likely that he read it, although it has not been proven. The book of Josephus would have only been useful to Joseph for identifying that Abraham knew astronomy and that he taught it to the Egyptians. And yet here exactly. you have Kwaku in a, in a thing that's produced by Fair Mormon, reiterating an argument that they've already acknowledged has holes in it. I, I cannot believe the deception that these guys go through. Here's the deal. Let me give the brief timeline because I was very disappointed in Kwaku in this regard. Back two years ago, when we were doing our first three-part episode on the Book of Abraham, I mentioned that it was a very common apologetic trick to look at texts that were not available to Joseph Smith that mentioned things in the Book of Abraham. They're not in the Bible, but they're in these other texts, right? That were not available to Joseph Smith. And the two main things are teaching astronomy to the Egyptians and the attempted sacrifice. And then saying, oh my gosh, Joseph Smith, how could he have known? Because these texts were not found until after Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham and after he was dead. Obviously, he's a prophet. Obviously, it's true revelation. What they do not tell you, my friend, what they do not tell you is that, yeah, that's true. But those same stories were also in other texts that were available to Joseph Smith. And the story about the astronomy in Egypt is in Josephus. The story about the attempted sacrifice is in the Adelbart Bible Commentary, both of which were available and we know used by Joseph Smith in his translation projects. Okay, so having said that, I bring that up the very next summer, summer of 2000 and, where are we? 18, 19, probably 19, 2019. Uh, Kwaku does a video, and I think it might've been with Saints Unscripted at the time, but he does the exact same apologetic trick, right? The one that I just described six months earlier. Now, I don't expect he had listened to me describe it, but he's pulling the exact same stunt, right? He's saying, here's these ones that Joseph Smith didn't know about, but they line up with the book of Abraham. They're not in the Bible. How could he have known? And so I did a response video. Uh, actually, it wasn't a video. It was an audio. It was at uh, Radio Free Mormon. It was called um, Quake Through the Deceiver, I think. And I point this out. And that he has done this six months after I identified it as a problem. Okay. And so then he does his response video to me in which he really doesn't deal with the issue so much as he, you know, makes fun of me and does his ad hominem shtick. Some of which is quite funny, but still it's not addressing the issue. And now after all of that, after I know that he knows that I have pointed out to him the trick 
and how it is it's done and identified that he did it a year and a half ago in the summer of 2019. It's disappointing to me to see him making the same argument with the same tactic and the same apologetic trick because it becomes clear to me that really the truth is not as important to Kwaku as it is uh, as is winning the argument or defending the book of Abraham. There's an old saying that says, when an honest man discovers he is mistaken, he's got a choice. He can either cease to be mistaken or he can cease to be honest. Yeah. And I yeah, that's the choice he's made is to continue to be dishonest um, and be mistaken. Yeah. When you when you do the one, when you're deceptive, uh, rather than change your mind, change the way you believe, you actually end up being both of those. You're now mistaken and dishonest. And that's the reputation that Kwaku is building fast and furious in this Mormon community, both among Mormons who understand the issues as well as among the critics. We've got our first phone call, RFM. I've got Brian on the line. I want to hear from Brian, but can I just say one thing that's good about these videos? Yeah, uh, at least as long as, as long as Quake is busy making these videos, at least he doesn't have time to be hosting super spreader events. No, no, young and dumb. Um, yeah, he, he's not spreading COVID-19 during a pandemic that is killing more people by the day right now than at any other time. Like it's it's at its peak and that peak keeps growing. Um, yeah, absolutely. All right. You ready for Brian? Brian. Brian, talk to us. Hey, yeah. can you hear me now? Hey, so um, love what you're doing. Glad to talk to you. I wanted to go through something that I sent you just um, during this call. I decided to send it to you and kind of talk about it with you. It's an email that I got in response to a request for more information that I sent to Fair Mormon. Now, I got involved when it was fair as a teenager and started going to the conferences to help resolve my own questions, my own issues. And so it was kind of a troubling direction to see these videos come out. Um, now I'm I'm definitely in a much more questioning stage, you know, open to looking for more sources. But for a long time, Fair Mormon was really my only source for looking into church history issues. And so I emailed Fair Mormon and said, hey, these videos are kind of disturbing. I don't know if someone handed the keys over to someone else for the weekend and... <laughs> No one knows what's going on, but what's going on with these videos? And I got a really interesting response. Um, do you mind if I share a couple parts of what John sent back to me? Yeah, and just let, let me yeah, let me set this up too. John Lynch is one of the top guys at Fair Mormon. Uh, he worked closely He's with on the me. Board of directors. Yeah, he worked closely with me when I was running your podcast. Um, he is the guy who's kind of the the face for PR. Like when someone asks a question or someone needs to be in front of a camera, giving a, a compassionate charitable response, it's John Lynch that they, they get out there and put in front of the camera and put in front of the microphone. And he's the guy who um, handles these kinds of responses. So yeah, by all means share with us. Yeah. And, and actually that's the kind of thing that I've seen from John in the past. I remember an interview that he did for the, one of the fair Mormon podcasts. Um, and he talked about how fair Mormons approach really is to, you know, bring out the best of the research and not attack people, but try to, you know, lay it all out there and help people resolve their concerns. That's why there are all the issues in one place, somewhere you can go to. That's kind of what I grew up with and what I liked. So anyway, um, John, you know, he thanked me for emailing him and asking about what's going on. And he says, you know, these, I'll quote, these videos are targeted at youth of the, 
at youth of the church who do not consume any other type of media we have produced from misleading and deceitful messages of the CES letter. Or any other content, any other type of content we have produced, and they are watching and being inoculated from misleading and deceitful messages from the CES letter. So there are a couple points to that, like the youth, yeah. You know, long conferences and super long Fair Mormon articles aren't that interesting, but I was one of those youth that did like Fair Mormon content. So for me, it's like, well, okay, I guess you can get away with that. But then something you said, Bill, last week that I, I think this verifies is that he said himself that they're being inoculated against the CES letter with these videos. And that term, um, we started kind of throwing it around. Uh, I think it first got introduced with the gospel topic essays that they were meant to be a form of inoculation. And I don't know if people really understand the word inoculation, but we use it to mean vaccines. And that's not really an appealing definition because vaccines are just destroying little pieces, destroying viruses and putting the little pieces of the virus into your body to build immunity. And it seems like with these videos that Fair Mormon is trying to present bits of the destroyed truth to help the minds of its listeners build some sort of immunity to the truth. I just don't get why yeah. inoculation seems to be a, an appropriate description of what they're trying to do or an appropriate mission for what they're trying to do. Yeah. I'll hang up with you here. I appreciate the call, my friend, and I appreciate the, uh, the information. Sure. We'll respond. We'll respond. To, yeah, email I forwarded to you. Yeah. Thank you. I just put a, the text of it up on, uh, up on our thing. So thank you so much. Sure thing. Bye. So you have these guys essentially defending at every turn the deceptive tactics that you're they're using. People are writing them. Brian's not the only one. There's somebody last week said they wrote them, and I've seen at least two other messages where people have written John Lynch or written Fair Mormon, and they've gotten a response back from John, or, and I think both of them were responses from John Lynch. John's essentially saying, look, this is us. This is what we're doing. We are going to fight this tooth and nail. And they're essentially admitting they're going, because we're showing how dishonest they are, they're essentially admitting um, that they're going to be dishonest and deceptive um, to get this across. Oh, you were muted there for a second. You're muted on your end, RFM. So Go sorry. Ahead. Yeah, I think that's a bad strategy. I think it's a bad strategy for a number of reasons. First off, because uh, it's an insult, actually, to, to the youth of today that they are so dim-witted and have such a short attention span that they can only watch these um, these sort of, uh, I don't know, MTV video type of Fair Mormon productions. And that's the only thing that's going to have any influence with them. But the real reason that it's really, really bad is because I don't think you help by mischaracterizing and in some places actually lying about what is in and not in the CES letter and then give the references to it on your screen and then have people go to the CES letter, read it, find out that, hey, actually, the CES letter does not say that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon using a Ouija board. Actually, these guys are Egyptologists, the three ones that they won't cite. They'll just talk about their white supremacist views. And they'll say, hey, wait a second, who's this Robert Rittner guy that they didn't mention? Who's that? Let me click, click on this link and read what he has to say about the Book of Abraham. What you have to do here bill is you have to actually address the substance of the issues so the substance of the argument in order to prevail in the arena of ideas it's a band-aid solution just to make fun of people and just pray to god that nobody actually goes there and reads what they have to say 
because I think that more and more people will, now that they know the CES letter exists, thanks to the Fair Mormon videos, they'll go there, they'll find it, they'll read it. And I think that when they compare the two, they're going to find that the better argument is on the CES letter side, as opposed to these Fair Mormon videos. This strategy of being dishonest and deceptive and whitewashing and also avoiding the data that is uh, troubling, this only works if people stay uninformed and ignorant. If, if anybody decides to go down the rabbit hole like you and I, it, it's gone. You will lose complete trust, not only in Fair Mormon, but when you recognize that this is also the way the church operates itself, you also lose trust in the top 15. And it's what's happened to most people who have left the church over these issues is they just lost trust in the top 15 of the church and in its apologists. We have Nolan on the phone. Um, just want to just make note here before uh, Nolan jumps on. Uh, we welcome live phone calls. Please try to keep your comments short. Uh, we want to try to get a few more of you on before we close the night out. Here's Nolan. Nolan, tell us what you got, my friend. All right, you I can, can hear me. I, I say that because I'm I'm calling from a very distant place, which both of you may know through my uh, special correspondence. <laughs> I know, I know. Hi, Nolan. How you doing? I got some postcards here from you. Thank uh, you so much. I would like both of you to weigh in on. Yeah, <clears throat> please. For, for something for something like thirty years, there was this preeminent apologist named Hugh Nibley who wrote volumes and volumes and volumes of apologetics, if, if we want to call it that. And by the way, Nolan, um, he's old and outdated. We can't use him anymore. He's old and outdated, well, right, just like these right. other Egyptologists from 200 years ago. Well, my, my, my reason for asking in, 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 in all of the discussions uh, in this, this realm that, that, that we swim in now, his name is, is almost absent. Uh, Hugh Nibley, I can't believe how little he uh, comes up in. It's like, what happened to him? I mean, he was paid for, what, 50 years by, by Brigham Young or whatever to, to do all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to know from both of you, and I'm sure you've read extensively his things. Did he give any value to, to uh, this, you know, to our insight and understanding of what's going on? It, 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 has dumbfounded me um, how little his name comes up as the preeminent uh, for what thirty years, the preeminent, most credible apologist the church ever had. So yeah. I'll leave that question and and listen online. Great Thank work, you. you guys. Thank you. Guys you. Are awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, RFM. My my only thought here with Hugh Nibley is Hugh Nibley was essentially doing the same thing that these two guys are doing, which is put up illogical, irrational arguments, but present them to the naive present them to the ignorant within the church and essentially smooth everything over. Like, Oh no, no, we got answers. We've got solutions. Hugh Nibley's research, his statements, his data, the things he wrote about the things he fudged. It's, it is outdated. Nobody is using it. The statement they made about these Egyptologists actually does hold true with Hugh Nibley. Um, so there's that much. Right. And I think that's a great observation that Nolan made. I had really occurred to me about Hugh Nibley's sudden absence on the scene, but that's true. I think that what was going on with Hugh Nibley, an absolutely brilliant individual who spent a lot of time and wrote a lot of things and books and articles, et cetera, defending the LDS church as one of its preeminent apologists. Uh, the thing about Hugh Nibley is that he wrote in, generally, not always, but generally he would write in such recondite ways 
and with so many footnotes in different languages, German and French. And it, I couldn't, I usually couldn't make heads or tails out of what he was saying. And the main benefit, the main benefit of Hugh Nibley was that he was obviously incredibly intelligent. He obviously believed the LDS church was true. And if he's saying all of this stuff, all this academies about it, well, it must make sense. And it must make sense to him, even if I can't understand it, and it must be true. Yeah. So he was very helpful in that regard to me and to a lot of other people. By contrast, the problem with these videos, even though they don't cite to him, is that they make it really clear what his arguments were. And when you make it clear what his arguments were, and they're not shrouded in academies, then it's a lot easier to see how frail and pitiful those arguments are and that they just don't really hold water. Yeah. We've got a, a Ryan on the phone, and then we'll take one more call after that. Um, and I also want to say, if there's somebody out there who can wants to call in and say, RFM, Bill Real, you guys are wrong. The, this stuff all adds up. We've got good solutions for these problems. These guys are being honest. These guys are telling the truth on these shows. Fair Mormon is a good, good organization. They are they are doing things on the up and up. We would put that call to the front of the line. I We want those calls. One of the things you and I are doing, RFM, is we're doing this unscripted for the most part. We are welcoming live phone calls. I'm, I'm answering them. And all I'm doing, you can ask anybody, if anybody wants to come on these messages and say, I, I, I called in. All I'm doing is asking their name. I'm not asking what they want to talk about. I'm not asking what their subject matter is. We want people to call in who disagree. We would welcome those kinds of calls. Um, we're not afraid of anything. And I think the truth's on our side. And I think we're the ones operating with integrity. And so you're not going to see the other guys do that. They're not going to operate in real time, unscripted, welcoming live phone calls. We are. With that, let's go to Ryan. Ryan, tell us what you got, my friend. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Um Thank you for doing this um, again. Uh, just like everyone else has said, I really enjoy watching. So I uh, I left the church, oh, I don't know, a couple years ago, and I wasn't really into apologetics, but I kind of got into it. And the Adam Clark Bible commentary stuff has been quite interesting to kind of see papers come out and um, Mormon discussions doing um, a podcast on that. But yeah. I also learned recently about the Spalding Men. Theory. Yeah. Um, and I... Uh, I haven't heard about it like too much in like apologetic circles. It seems kind of strong. It seems like a very interesting theory with lots of good computer, you know, analysis behind yeah. it that uh, people have done. Um, and I was just wondering, is there a reason why we, I like haven't like that's just not yeah. a more commonly advanced theory? Yeah. Um, do uh, people kind of arguing for it not have good enough evidence? Uh, I just I, I'm not sure. I, I just didn't know yeah. what your guys' thoughts on the theory. We'll yeah, we'll hang up with you and we'll respond. I I, I like the theory and I'll, I'll share here. I'll hang up with you and we'll talk about it. Um, the the Spalding manuscript for me, RFM, there's two issues. One is that I know that there's conversation about Rigdon and Joseph Smith meeting earlier in time. The evidence for that doesn't seem strong to me. There also, the Spalding manuscript, we had the first Spalding thing come out and then there was a second Spalding thing and the second thing uh, wasn't anything like the Book of Mormon either. And so now we have to go to like, there's this third thing. It's never been found. It doesn't exist, but maybe, and you and I, we tend to not want to play in the maybes. And I, for me, I think that's the reason that uh, critics of Mormonism have not in large number jumped on the Spalding manuscript because the evidence is weak and it would feel like I'm sacrificing some of my integrity, and I think you would say the same, to go out on a limb and promote such a theory when there really isn't any evidence for it. Your thoughts? 
Right. And I, and I don't think there's that much of a need for it. It comes from the idea that Joseph Smith could not have done this on his own and producing and translating the Book of Mormon. Therefore, he must have relied on somebody else's manuscript. And the theory has to do with the Reverend Solomon Spaulding, who I think was a reverend who was like uh, in Oliver Cowdery's neighborhood. And he produces this manuscript, right? And they've got these witnesses who talk about the manuscript in the past tense after the Book of Mormon comes out and talks about, oh, well, it talks about Moroni. And the name Moroni is in this manuscript, right? But the manuscript can't be produced. It was never published, right? So it becomes lost, which is a little bit ironic because I think the title of it was the manuscript lost. Anyway, or maybe it's manuscript found. Regardless, what happened was, is that in 1890, if I'm remembering this correctly, and this is live, in 1890, this was, uh, the manuscript was actually discovered in an attic in a box in Honolulu, Hawaii, by a guy with the last name Rice. Correct me if I have this wrong. I feel like I'm doing Karnak on Johnny Carson. But I think that's where it was found. And then it was actually looked at. And it didn't have anything to do. There was no Moroni. It didn't look at anything like the Book of Mormon. It didn't look anything like these earlier witnesses had recollected it as being. And therefore, because that manuscript can't be the manuscript these witnesses were remembering, therefore, now there must be another manuscript, right, that he had written that's different from this manuscript. So then it starts becoming more and more attenuated. By the way, uh, the Solomon Spaulding and the, um, the Spaulding theory was huge. When I cut my teeth on apologetics in the late 70s, there was a book that had just come out about it. Um, and so, uh, but it is not very much anymore. That was probably some of its last gasps yeah. in the late seventies. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't want to sit here and say like the Spalding manuscript is absolutely 100% false. That idea, that, that theory, it's just, there's not enough evidence to go put your credibility on the line and to hold it up and to, to tout it as being true or even, even moderately plausible with the evidence that's there. Um, our last call, we've got Loman on the, on the phone, Loman, um, Loman. Loman, tell us what you got, my friend. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I really appreciate you guys um, with all your podcasts and everything um, with that. One thing, I just wanted to put this in the bigger picture. You know, these Fairmoren videos are only getting 15,000, 20,000 views, which I'll admit is pretty large, but the church is 15 million members, maybe 5 million if you count the active ones. Is the debate between, I guess, Internet Mormonism and regular plain Jane Mormon in the pews. Are they, are they even watching? What's, I guess what I'm trying to say is how can we get this information to those regular people in the church? Is this even affecting the membership at large? Like how, I don't know, on both sides, I guess, is this even worth anyone's time? Um, and like, like I should plug in, if you do join this stuff, like the video, subscribe and donate to these guys, cause they're doing so much work yeah, to get this you. into Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, let me say this. Um, first off, they do have 15,000 views on the video we talked about last week, RFM. They only have 8,000 on the one we're talking about tonight before we started. My guess is about half the views are coming from post-Mormons sending people through Reddit, through our uh, conversation here. And those people are going to watch those videos to kind of see those mistakes and that deception on their own. So I'm curious how many people are watching their videos that are actually post-Mormons or people being sent by post-Mormons who are now being seen, who are now seeing the deception and seeing it take place. That's first. Second, how do you reach the people, the, the average Mormon? You can't. Um, Mormonism is a high demand fundamentalist religion. All high demand fundamentalist religions try the best they can to deflect, obfuscate, 
and distance themselves and their followers, the the you know, the in the seats, true believing Mormons, the active members of the church, they they try at all cost to distance you and all high demand fundamentalist religions do this. Distance those folks from the arguments, from the debate, from the awareness. And again, if it hadn't been for the internet, we wouldn't be having any of these conversations. The church has been forced, scratching and clawing, to come to the information age and to begin through the gospel topic essays and other places. And that only started 2013 to acknowledge some of this messiness. You can't reach the average person in the pews unless folks like you listening share these broadcasts with these uh, these live streams with people uh, that you know that are believing that or you think might be willing to listen to this kind of stuff and un- begin to understand these arguments from inside the rabbit hole, which goes forever, as we talked about last week. Yeah. RFM, thoughts? Well, I've got a call coming in from Robert Rittner right now. Should I put him on speakerphone? I don't think that would be fair to him, but I've been trying to contact him this week and now he's calling me back. Anyway, I don't think that'd be fair to him, so I'm not going to do that. Um, what I would say is this, is that um, I hope their numbers are high because I want people to watch those videos. You have invited people, your audience, to go watch those videos at yeah, Fair Mormon. I want to take this opportunity to send people to go watch those videos at Fair Mormon. And I hope that that is increasing the numbers because nothing is going to get people to realize the uh, problems and the weakness of the apologist position better than watching these videos at Fair Mormon. It's like what Napoleon Bonaparte said, one of his maxims of military strategy is never interrupt your enemy while he's making a mistake. Yeah. Keep them going. And Keep that's, making them. Absolutely. Everybody go watch this, watch it all and look up the references. And I think that their arguments do more harm to them than they do good for their cause. Yeah. Amen. We have gone an hour and a half RFM. Um, I thought maybe we'd have gone longer than that. I'm actually quite pleased that it only went an hour and a half. Uh, appreciative of you. Any last closing comments or thoughts before we close out this, uh, this broadcast? No, I think that's about it actually, but you know, I don't want to come down too hard on Quaku. He's a young kid. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he's doing his, his shtick. He's making his mark. He's doing things. And I think that's great. I just think there's a, you know, he'll mature, he'll learn things and experience, will help him hopefully grow a little bit more. And um, I just think he, he just needs to repent a little. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll say too, um, Fair Mormon claims to have nobody paid on staff except for a guy who manages their bookstore. And, and again, you know, you and I take a little bit of royalties from doing what we do. Um, so I want to acknowledge that first, because again, we're trying to be honest uh, to our audience, but I don't think Quaku is the kind of guy that's going to do this stuff for free. Uh, so it'll be interesting to know if Fair Mormon is paying these guys or if these guys are doing this on a volunteer basis like the rest of Fair's guys. Uh, they're volunteers. And I'm intrigued to know the answer to that question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm intrigued to know the answer. Uh, lastly, I'll just say this is fun. I'm really enjoying doing these. And we're, again, we've completed here number two. And we'll pick something and do something next week. And I'll get with you here in the next probably 48 hours and we'll find a topic. But I think this is a lot of fun for our followers and our listeners and people who are interested by these conversations. Again, we're still holding at 135 an hour and a half later. Um, appreciative of the people who tune in. If you would consider, please go to mormonismlive.org and donate. 
this the the continuance of this kind of a program and the time it takes and and how you and I have to set time aside at a specific time each week really depends on donations coming into that Mormonism Live uh, donation link. So go to mormonismlive.org, uh, click the donate button, send us a few bucks, and uh, we thank each of you who have tuned in and stayed along somewhere along the way. Thank you for your comments. Thank you to the handful of people who made phone calls. And again, if you're not on our side, you're a believing Mormon and you know this stuff adds up, we would love if you guys would call in as well. Absolutely. And let's continue to have our open invitation to uh, Brad Whitbeck, to Kwaku L, to John Lynch. Um, It'd be great if John Lynch would come on and address the, the honesty of these uh, of these videos. Uh, I would love to ask him if he is in agreement with the level of honesty that's being portrayed, or should I say the level of deception being portrayed in this work? Yes, the door is open. The red carpet is rolled out. You're welcome anytime. Yeah, and I'd love if they would sit down with us for the whole hour and a half and we could just sit and talk about it. We'll give you as much time as you like to explain your position and to answer a few questions that I have rolling around in my head. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Have a great night, RFM. Good night to everybody. Glad you guys tuned in. Thank you so much for joining the show. Good night.